First Chronicles uh, chapter 21. Uh, this is an incident we're probably familiar with uh, when uh, Satan provokes David into taking the census of his people. First Chronicles 21 verse 1, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, Go, number Israel from Beersheba to Dan, and bring me a report that I may know their number. But Joab said, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. Are they not my Lord the king, all of them my Lord's servants? Why then should my Lord require this? Why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? But the king's words prevailed against Joab, so Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came back to Jerusalem. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people of Is- to David. In all Israel, there were 1,100,000 men who drew the sword, and in Judah, 470,000 who drew the sword. But he did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering, for the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. But God was displeased with this thing. And he struck Israel, and David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing, but now please take away the iniquity of your servant. For I have acted very foolishly. And the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, choose what you will, either three years of famine or three years of devastation by your foes with the sword of your enemy overtakes you, or else three days of the sword of the Lord, pestilence on the land, with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is very great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell. And God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw, and he relented from the calamity. And he said to the angel who is working destruction, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. And David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven. And in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. And David and the elders clothed in sackcloth fell upon their faces. And David said to God, Was it not I who, commanded to, who gave command to number the people? It is I who have sinned and done great evil. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand, O Lord my God, be against me and against my father's house, but do not let the plague be on your people. Now the angel of the Lord had commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. And we'll stop there. Let's go Lord in prayer. Fathers, uh, we study uh, this section of Scripture and 
light of uh, the warfare of our enemy. May we have our eyes open uh, to those times uh, when we are provoked or incited to uh, think uh, that we stand in our own strength, uh, that we are self-reliant. May you open our eyes uh, to our weakness because it is when we are weak You are strong because it is then that we know uh, that your grace towards us is not in vain. May we not be like David uh, who at this moment uh, in his life is trusting in himself, exalting himself. May we be humble before you. For this we pray in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen. Now, as we dig into this section of Scripture, I think it's important to deal with a textual difficulty, just in case you come upon this later. Uh, Chronicles and First and Second Samuel parallel each other, yet they kind of give a different perspective. You'll note in 2 Samuel 24, and it's recounting of the same incident in chapter 24 of 2 Samuel verse 1, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel in Judah. Whereas, in verse 21, then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Uh, Uh, What commentators point out is going on here is Samuel is looking at the primary cause God has uh, opened uh, David up to that influence. Uh, For some reason, David has opened his life up to divine discipline. And in this instance, uh, the Lord has opened him kind of like Job. You know, Satan uh, says that Job uh, only serves you because he has all these nice things. And the Lord permits Satan to take away uh, Job's possessions, uh, his family minus his wife and his health. And it seems to be, given the context of everything that is going on in David's reign, David is coming to a point where uh, it would be almost humanly impossible for him not to have a certain sense of pride and self-reliance. Uh, the previous chapters uh, give conquest after conquest. Uh, 18 and onward, it it speaks of uh, David's conquest of the Philistines and uh, his victory over the Ammonites and the Syrians. And chapter 20 uh, tells us in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, Joab let out the army and ravaged the country of the Ammonites and came and besieged Reba. But David remained at Jerusalem... And we know what happened there. And Joab struck down Reba and overthrew it. And David took the crown of their king from his head. He found that it weighed a talent of gold, and it was precious stone, and it was placed on David's head. So, so David receives uh, this crown that he didn't even fight for, uh, for, for the fir- really the first time in life. He's not the one fighting his battles. He's sending his men to do his work. But all these things uh, that uh, he, he's... Achieving victory. 
You know, think about how David started uh, out. David uh, starts out this unsuspecting shepherd boy, and then he finds himself uh, standing up to Goliath of Gath, who is uh, provoked at the people of Israel, intimidated them, saying uh, that if anyone uh, would come against him in battle and win, then the people of the Philistines would be the slaves of the people of Israel. And yet no one was willing to take him up on that offer except when David came on his errand to bring his brother's food from his father. David asked, who is this standing against the armies of the Lord of Israel? And he comes to Goliath. Goliath asks, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And David says, I come to you in the name of the Lord. You know, David uh, had no assumptions of his power, his strength, and might. And now, as he's getting later on in life, he he is experiencing military victory after military victory. And and just before this episode, uh, the author Chronicles uh, tells us uh, what has happened to Goliath's family. It says, after this, there arose war with the Philistines at Gezer. Verse 4, then Sibekai the Hushite struck down Sippy, who is one of the descendants of the giants. And the Philistines were subdued, and there was war again with the Philistines. And Elanon, the son of Jair, struck down Lammy, the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was war again at Gath, and where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, twenty-four in number. And he also was a descendant from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, struck him down. These were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of a servant. So here he's uh, overcome all the obstacles. He's overcome all his enemies. Even Goliath's family, he's conquered with the help of his mighty men. He's at the height. Now imagine in your own life having all that great success. You know, the danger with success is that we can develop a sense of pride. The interesting thing about the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, pride is not a virtue. You look at Aesop's fables, pride was a virtue, humility was a vice. Uh, But in the vast majority of the world, pride is a virtue. It's important to be proud of yourself. It's important to have pride in your accomplishments. But the Bible tells us we are what we are by the grace of God. It is not our own doing. It is not we ourselves who have accomplished great things. It is God who really accomplishes great things for us. But what happens when we enjoy a great amount of success is we get that big head. We start thinking we're important. We start thinking we're powerful. So here David is. He's at the pinnacle of power. He's at the pinnacle of military victory. And what author of Chronicles tells us, it was at that point the enemy made a foothold in his life. And Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. And, and I think I'm on good grounds when I see the relationship between pride and the enemy's uh, uh, attack on David's life. 
James uh, points out to that very relationship between our pride and our relationship with God. In James chapter 4, James Begin verse 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scriptures say he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves to the devil. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Even James sees a a relationship between pride and our relationship between the devil because what happens uh, when we are uh, giving into these prideful inclinations is we're following in the old path of the enemy. I mean, that is the enemy's first great sin. Satan wanted to be equal with God. Satan thought he was more important and fell. It's not without reason that the wisdom literature of the Old Testament says pride comes before destruction. So here David is. He's probably glowing in his achievements. He's at rest. He's at security. His military genius, his uh, military leadership has brought him uh, greater victory than Saul ever enjoyed. It has brought greater conquest than Joshua or any of the judges had known. He has unified the people of Israel in such a way that it has never happened before. That pride in what was going on... Uh, Uh, moved him to take a census. There's only two reasons a census uh, would have occurred at that time. One was either to tax the people, which this one does not appear to be a census for taxing. The second one was to raise up an army. David wants to see how big of an army he has. Which means David has forgot a lesson that he has been learning his entire adult life up until this point. A lesson that he's been teaching his people throughout David's Psalms. Uh, 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 both those recorded in First and Second Samuel and those recorded in the Psalms. David clearly saw that the Lord was the one who fought his battles. When David was a young lad standing before Goliath of Gath, David did not think to himself, you know, I'm standing here in my strength and my military strategy, standing against this great and awesome warrior. David knew that it was the Lord who would fight for him. And somehow between then and this point in his life, David has forgotten that it's not the size of his army that counts. It's not the number of soldiers he has to go into battle. It is the God he is serving. David's eyes have come off God as the one who defends and protects his people. And now David thinks it's this army that he is the head of, that he is the leader of. Rather than, as Paul would say in Ephesians 6, standing in the strength of the Lord, David is standing in his strength as a military leader. Because Satan has provoked him to self-reliance. 
And we understand that what David is doing is completely unrighteous. We know his motivations are entirely wrong. And we know that because Joab, of all people, is telling David what he's doing is wrong. Uh, if you ever read through First uh, and Second Samuel or First Chronicles, Joab is not the paragon of morality. Joab, of all people, has a very questionable uh, moral compass on him. And so when Joab, of all people, is warning David about the righteousness or unrighteousness of his actions, David should take extreme care. But he's been puffed up. He's full of himself. Uh, Says uh, he gives the instruction to Joab. The very Joab uh, that he sent the message uh, for Uriah, his best friend, to be killed because he had taken Uriah's wife and committed adultery with her. He gives the instruction to Joab, go, verse 2, go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring me a report that I may know their number. David wants to know, oh, how big of an army he has. David wants to know how equipped he is to meet any adversity that might come against him. No thought to the Lord in this. No faith in the Lord's protection or provision for his people. And Joab, again, I say, of all people, says, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. Are they not... My Lord, the king, all of them, my Lord's servants. Joab saying, uh, the Lord will give us however many we need, but may the Lord bless us. But let us not do this thing. Let us not trust in our own strength. Let us not trust in our resources because God is sufficient. It doesn't matter how many we have, David. They're your servants. They will go fight for you. Just trust in the Lord. He is sufficient for the task. David uh, forgot uh, the military history of his people. David forgot stories like Gideon, where Gideon has this large army of thousands, and he's told by the Lord that he has too many. The Lord makes it dwindle, dwindle down to 300 soldiers armed with trumpets and jars. Your eye continues. Why then should my Lord require this? Getting at the reason, there is no other reason for David to take this census than for him to stoke his pride and his ego in the large army he has at his disposal. You know, the, the kings uh, of the pagan countries, they took uh, their identity, their sense of security, their sense of protection, and knowing that they had a large army. Because if you didn't have a large army, you could be overrun uh, by anyone. Job continues, why should it be cause of guilt for Israel? Joab, for all his faults, uh, has enough spiritual discernment to understand uh, that David, uh, a man after God's own heart, is about to do something that is against God's heart. And the only reason behind it is 
David's life has been open to an attack from the enemy, Satan. There are uh, three sections of Scripture uh, where the exact name uh, Satan appears. Uh, one here in Chronicles, again in Job, and then uh, later on in Zechariah when uh, Satan is accusing Joshua the high priest. And here, Satan is inciting David because of his opposition to the people of God. Because he is the accuser of the brethren, because he, as Peter says in 1 Peter, goes around like a roaring lion, seeing whom he may devour. And in this instance, the enemy strategy against David is appeal to his pride, appeal to his self-reliance. The enemy works in that same way today. You know, when we think that we can accomplish what the Lord has called us to do in our power and our strength, we are sadly mistaken. And yet, we do live in a day and time, especially in regards to church life, where we think somehow, humanly speaking, the resources are available on the human side of things to accomplish this great commission that only God can accomplish. I mean, the great commission is really all about spiritual warfare because uh, we're to go into all nations, we're go and make disciples of all nations. We are to go into enemy-occupied territory. First John 5 tells us this whole world lies under the evil one. When you go to work and you're witnessing to your unbelieving co-worker, you're going into enemy-occupied territory uh, trying to wrestle or somebody who is a slave to the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. It should be entirely expected first that we're going to find opposition from the enemy in that regard. Satan doesn't want to lose anyone that he's going to pull to hell with him. And the second thing that we need to realize is that we don't fight in our own strength. Martin Luther, in his great hymn, Mighty Fortress is Our God, he says, did we at our own strength confide, all striving would be losing. That's what's going on with David here. He's confiding in his own strength. It's like, uh, Joab, see how strong we are. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, we have never done things in our own strength. Uh, the Lord wants us to bring us to the point where we aren't uh, self-exalting, uh, self-centered, and self-pleased on what we can do. Uh, Paul uh, learned that lesson himself in Second uh, Corinthians chapter twelve. Uh, Paul uh, speaks of his uh, great experience. Now, chapter twelve, verse one of Second Corinthians, Paul says, "I must go on boasting." There's nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body. I do not know. God knows. 
And I know this man was caught up in the paradise, whether in the body or out of the body. I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except of my weakness. Oh, if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. That's kind of what's going on here with David. Satan has come into David's life at one of the points where David would be the most conceited. Satan has provoked David to take this census. Joab partially obeys because Joab does not like the order. It says, Joab, verse 5, gave the sum of the numbering of the people to David and all Israel. There were 1,100,000 men who drew the sword and a Judah 470,000 men who drew the sword. It says, David did not include the Levi and the Benjamins in the numbering for the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. Joab understood that David was motivated in the wrong direction, that he was inviting sin onto his people. Second thing that we see here in relation to David's prideful senses and him opening himself to this enemy's strategy is that we never sin alone. You know, when we get kind of put ourselves on a pedestal, and when we fall off that pedestal, we usually fall on other people and hurt them. Verse 7, uh, God was displeased with this thing, and he struck Israel. Well, why strike Israel? Because David is representative of the people. They are a whole David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing, but now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. Now, in the Old Testament, if you wanted to display that you were humbled before God, uh, there was one recognizable way that you would do that, by putting on sackcloth and ashes by fasting. David, even now, knowing that the Lord is provoked in his prideful census of his people, and that David was trying to rely upon his own strength, even now, David has not been humbled. He just wants the consequence of his sin taken away. It's almost as if he's saying, God, I goofed, can I have a do-over? He doesn't understand the enormity of what he has done. And so the Lord sends the prophet Gad to David. Verse 10, go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, choose what you will, either three years of famine or three months of devastation by your foes, while the sword of your enemies overtake you, or else three days of the sword of the Lord pestilence on the land, with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. It's almost as if God is uh, taking a, a David out and told him, Pick your switch. 
Because David, what's happening here is David is not rightly humbled uh, for giving in to the enemy's uh, incitement. David is entirely responsible for everything he is doing, and yet he's not at a point of humbleness and brokenness that he needs to be brought to. And so the Lord gives him three options, and David being, after all, a man after God's own heart, understand that it's a better thing to fall into God's hands than his enemy's hands. Verse 13, then David said to Gad, I, I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is very great, but do not let me fall into the hand of an enemy. And 70,000 people paid the price for David's sin. The Lord sent a pestilence on Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell. And it was going to keep going until David was broken of his pride. Like I read in James, God opposes the proud. God is still, in the point of the story, still opposed to David. David is on the wrong side of God, and therefore Israel is on the wrong side of God. David is acting out of unbelief, and so God is going to bring David to brokenness and humility. Verse 15, And God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it, but as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw and he relented from the calamity. And he said to the angel who was working destruction, it is enough. Now stay your hand. And what was going on? What made it enough? What, what, what was the difference between when David asked for his iniquity to be removed because he had acted foolishly? Well, it tells us. The angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite, and David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, and in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. It's only when the severity of his actions uh, are clearly before him uh, that the Lord was willing to cut off everyone that he counted in his census and to bring David to nothing. It's only then that David is really brought to the point of genuine repentance. As I said before, every episode of humbling repentance that you see in the Old Testament is accompanied with the putting on of sackcloth and ashes. And that's what David and his elders do. Then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell upon their faces. And before David simply telling his prophet Gad, okay, go talk to God, tell him to take away my sin. And now he is humbling himself before the Lord in light of his sin. God has opposed David's pride. God has humbled him. Verse 17, and David said to God, was it not I who commanded to number the people, it is I who have sinned and done great evil. But the sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand, O Lord my God, be against me, against my father's house, but do not let the plague be on your people. 
David's at the point where he completely understands uh, the enormity of his action, that he as the leader should have borne responsibility. He simply wanted God to take away the consequences without him understanding the enormity of his pride. But here, David is a humbled man. And it's here uh, that the Lord is uh, uh, laying the foundation uh, for something even David doesn't understand the greatness of. Because this threshing floor that David is going to buy would be the very location that his son would build the temple on. And it's this location that David buys. He's offered it freely as he is the king. But David would not accept uh, that because uh, he would not offer. Uh, verse 24, the king said to Orton, No, but I will buy them for the full price. He's uh, wanting to buy the oxen with the land. I will not take for the Lord what is yours, nor offer burnt offering that costs me nothing. David has been brought to the point where he wants to give the Lord his due. He doesn't want to stand uh, as this self-important king. If you ever have a chance and read in Deuteronomy, the Lord gives instructions on how uh, the kings are to behave and they're to basically be the opposite of all the kings uh, of the nations around them, whereas the kings of the nations around them trusted in horses and chariots and trusted in the size of their army and took whatever they wanted. The Lord's Kings in Israel were to be examples of holy service unto the Lord and their leadership. And whereas David just before was ready to walk in the path of those pagan kings around him, trusting in the number of men that he had to fight for him, the Lord has humbled him. Verse 28, at that time when David saw the Lord had answered him at the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite, he sacrificed there for the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses had made in the wilderness, and the altar a burnt offering were at that time in the high places at Gibeon. But David could not go before it to inquire of God, for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. And David said, here shall be the house of the Lord God, and here the altar of burnt offering for Israel. And the enemy will do, loves nothing more than when we, like David, rely upon ourselves, on what we can do, whether individually in our own lives, or we think we're the self made man or the self made woman. None of us are self made individuals. Anything of genuine worth in what we have accomplished in this life is solely by His grace. It's a gift from God. The enemy wants to get it. One of the primary ways the enemy wants to attack us as believers is to think that we can do what we need to in our own strength, in our own power, in our own might. Uh, this idea of self-reliance. Because the truth of the matter is, we aren't self-reliant. Especially in our battle against the enemy. Well, one of the greatest mistakes that we make when dealing with the enemy is thinking that we can handle him. We can't. But he can. 
That's why uh, later on in our series on uh, spiritual warfare, we see uh, Paul tell the church in Ephesus uh, that they are to be strong in the strength of the Lord and His might, not theirs. We don't stand uh, in our own strength. We don't look at our vast spiritual accomplishments as some armory that we can rely upon. We don't put on the armor of Stephen or the armor of whoever. We put on the armor of God. It is His strength. It is His power that will give the victory. Just as it was God that gave David the victory over all his enemies up until this point in his life. In our own lives, in our own spiritual warfare, it is the Lord that will give us victory. But when we are proud, He will oppose us in that. As a means of disciplining us, and that means of us drawing close to Him. Just as He has done with David, David has been brought to the point of humility so that he can genuinely worship You know, we cannot genuinely worship God uh, when we are provoked to pride. You know, if we walk into the doors of the church or if we get on our knees with an elevated sense of self-worth, thinking uh, we're a gift to God, you know, uh, God is so lucky uh, that He has us on His side. You know, God is so blessed that we're on His side. Jesus' adversaries had that very attitude. Jesus uh, in the Gospel of Luke tells uh, the parable of uh, the tax collector and the Pharisee. Whereas uh, the tax collector uh, looks down and beats his breast and prays, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Uh, The uh, Pharisee uh, looks up and prays, "Uh, Thank you, Lord, uh, that I'm not a Gentile, I'm not a sinner, and I'm not a tax collector. We must be, have our eyes open to the strategy of the enemy. He wants us to look at ourselves. He wants us to think about how great and important and powerful we are, both as individual, both on the individual level and as the church level. And I think one of the greatest strategies that the enemy has used in the church in North America is so many churches I think that they're so powerful and so important. When it's the Lord that is important. Now, so many churches think you, you, we, we have discovered a program. We have the resources and strategies to overtake the forces of darkness. It seems like every year there's a new program. There's a new strategy. There's a new resource. And yet, the world remains just as dark year after year. The reason is uh, because... Uh, So many churches are doing a census of what they have rather than in whose they are. May we not be like David, attempted to trust in whatever numbers we come up with or whatever might we think we have. May we continue our spiritual lives like David ends this encounter here, humbled. 
Because the only way that we will accomplish anything great for God is if we are humble before Him. Now, we're doing the series on revival. There has never been a genuine revival, awakening born out of pride. God will never bring revival or awakening to those that are self-satisfied, self-complacent. But when we realize that we are weak, we are powerless, and we need Him, and that He is all we need, that's one of the first steps in revival. That's one of the first steps in victory against the enemy, recognizing that we can't, but He can. He is the one that gives us the victory. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you that we do not stand in our own strength, uh, but that we stand in your strength. And when we are tempted uh, to think uh, that we stand in our own might or based on what we have or what we can do, may you humble us as you humbled David. May we have our eyes open to the fact that every step we take, every breath that we breathe, everything that we do is dependent upon your divine grace towards us in our lives. And may that grace be evident as we have an enemy that seeks to do war against us. We know that enemy would love nothing more than for us to focus on ourselves rather than you. But may He never win that battle in our lives. For this we pray in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen.